And you know, electrolyte emergencies, we see these every single day, right? How many patients do we order electrolytes on? How many times has the nurse called you, telling you there's an abnormality that you needed to deal with, um, that you maybe have to order something and deal with acutely or not? How many renal failure patients do we come in with? How many patients do we see with all these electrolyte abnormalities on a daily basis? We see it all the time, to a point that we are probably really jaded about these things. Um, I've done this lecture a couple times before. Maybe some of you guys have heard it. This is probably about the fourth time I've given this lecture, and every single time I change it because I really dislike electrolyte emergencies in that there really aren't electrolyte emergencies in emergency medicine. There are actually very few. But the pathophysiology behind these things is, like, incredibly complicated and incredibly interesting and very internal medicine, and it's very easy to get caught up when you're giving this lecture on electrolyte emergencies in the pathophysiology. But you'll be very happy to hear that... In this lecture, because I am pressed for time and I knew I was only going to have a half an hour to do this, um, what we're going to do is I, I made this really simple. Okay, this is completely a dumbed down approach here. So, no, that's that. <laughs> what am I doing? Okay, I've tried the trackball. I've tried the thing underneath. I think it's the left button. <sighs> left button. Okay. So um, we're going to follow the kiss principle in this. Anybody know the kiss principle? Kiss, right? Yes. So it's not that. If anybody wants an interesting story, they can ask me about my Ducks night during when it was the Kiss official Kiss evening at the Ducks game. Um, it's a very interesting story. It's not this Kiss principle. It is keep it simple, stupid, right? And in electrolyte emergencies, we can really get involved into all the pathophysiology that goes into these things, but it really doesn't change what we do. Our treatment for these things is very prescribed. It doesn't really matter about the physiology. So if you guys want to look up the physiology, have fun. But we're not going to talk about that today. One of the things that we are going to talk about in this first part of the lecture, we'll talk about hyperkalemia because this is really the only true electrolyte emergency. There might be one other one that we'll talk about a lot. But this is really the one true electrolyte emergency, medicine, emergency, um, electrolyte emergency that we need to be very facile with treating. We need to know this like the back of our hand. We need to know when to treat it. We need to know what to do with it. And we do it better than anybody else. You know, talk to a, you know, give me an internist, a, re, a nephrologist, an emergency medicine doctor with a patient with acute hyperkalemia. I'll take the emergency medicine doctor treating that every single day and twice on Saturday because we do it better. We know what to do. They don't. So um, this, because <coughs> I dumbed this down so much, this is kind of going to be a really good review for the R3s for, like, you know, the test thing and the R2s and even the R1s to some extent, but this is going to require some audience participation. So... Uh, feel free to yell out answers, because you guys know these. This should be a review. If it's not a review, that's OK. That's what this is for. <coughs> All right, so we'll go through the book, kind of test answers to things, real life applications, and then a common scenario. All right, so hyperkalemia. Five is the magic number. This is a book answer, right? Levels above five and a half are bad in books. Okay, if you get a test question and the level's above five and a half, you should probably treat that. There's five causes to hyperkalemia that you need to know. There's five EKG changes that you need to know. And there's five treatments that you need to know. It's all easy. All right. So treatments start above level, if level above 5.5. Is that what we do in real life? Exactly. So practically, we usually start to worry more about six, six and a half. You know, symptoms don't usually start until about six, six and a half. And usually, they don't really start until a K of seven. Now, there's a lot of things that go into that with the chronicity and the timing of how long they've been hyperkalemic and how acute the rise of the potassium is. But generally, we tend not to worry about Ks until they get to be about six, six and a half, seven. But that book answer is five and a half, just so you know. What is the most common cause? Anybody? Anybody? 
hemolysis, right? The extracorporeal kind. That is the book answer. That is the answer in real life. For once, they match. Um, so this is, you know, the nurse draws the blood, shakes it up too much, puts it in the tube system that shakes it up too much. There's lysis of red blood cells. By the time it, get, by the time it gets down to lab, it's hemolyzed. Sometimes that's reported, sometimes that isn't, especially from an outside lab. So if they get their blood drawn on an outside lab, we don't know if it's hemolyzed or not. Sometimes they don't report that. So five causes. We already know the first one is not real and it's hemolysis. So what are the other ones? Renal failure, okay. What else? Acidosis, good. Keep going. Okay, good. So cell death, right? And oh, there's five of those too causing cell death. How funny, right? Amazing. And drugs, right? ACE inhibitors, potassium sparing diuretics, those kinds of things, beta blockers, and NSAIDs. Okay, those are five causes. Five EKG changes. One of the interns. Someone go through the progression for me that you're supposed to know. Peak T waves. <laughs> See, that's good. Five and a half to six and a half. YQRS is a little later. You do something before that, but that's good. That's on there. What else? No P waves. So full on PR. Widen QRS. There's your widen QRS. Lots of P wave, sine wave. In real life, what you tend to see is bradycardia. You tend not to see like all those progressions of changes, and they don't need to progress. They can come in at any point along the, any of those five changes with EKGs. Um, or you may just see VFib arrest. You may not even ever go through the T waves, the PR, the QRS. And, and that doesn't necessarily happen in front of you either. So they can come in with pretty much anything. But bradycardia, third degree heart block, yeah. Yeah, that's very, very common. And not peak T's. Yep, yeah, the patients really don't follow the book on uh, the EKG changes, although they're supposed to. But those are your book answers. All right, and there's, there's your tall peak T waves. Touch them, they hurt, that's the classic ouch. You see them in the precordial leads. And then by the time you get to the progressive widening. And the K, you know, I've seen progressive widening like that in the third degree heart block. I remember a patient that I had like that, and her K was not anywhere near eight. I mean, her K was like six and a half. But that was the only cause. Pam. Is there any kind of, um, like, how many millimeters or how things judge when they peaked or not? No. The peaked, no. It just looks, it's sharp, it's pointy, it's narrow. Um, it does look a little bit like a hyperacute T wave, but Lander can give you a little bit more differentiation, but it's more needle-like. It's not quite as broad. Yeah, right, yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I wouldn't either, but it, it looks like if you touch it, it would hurt, whereas hyperacute T waves have a little bit more of a round to them, but it looks essentially the same. Because they're tall. Left button, right button. No. Okay. Five treatments. We all know these, right? Calcium, insulin, glucose, albuterol, bicarbonate, excretion agents. Anybody want to make a comment on those? Yeah. There is a there is a mnemonic <coughs> that I'm supposed to tell you that exists for book answers. It's called C big K drop. You guys might have uh, memorized that at one point. <laughs> calcium gluconate versus calcium chloride. And I will tell you now, there is no right answer. Either one is fine, but it is a style point. It also kind of depends on how much you want to give for the calcium gluconate because it contains less elemental calcium per volume than the calcium chloride. You have to give more. 
However, the calcium chloride burns like crap. So you'll have an awake patient who has no vein or arm left, and if it extravasates, God help you, because there's nothing you can really do about it, and it's very, very sclerosing. The calcium gluconate is less sclerosing, less painful, but you do have to give more of it to get the same amount of calcium in. It's 30 cc's because they don't do the, you can't just do an amp of calcium gluconate anymore because they don't make amps of calcium gluconate. They send you up vials and you have to just give up the whole 30 cc's of it, which is 100 mil equivalents of calcium, which is what you get in the 10 amp solution of the calcium chloride. All right, the onset is under five minutes. The duration is about an hour. What do you think that does to the potassium level? No? No? Nothing? No? Right. So it doesn't do anything to the potassium level. It doesn't help change your potassium level at all. All it does is stabilize your myocardial membrane potential, right? So the only time that you give this is if there's EKG changes, right? Now, I tried to look up some things about if you gave this, because they didn't have EKG changes, but their potassium, does that prophylactically protect you from EKG changes? And there's nothing out there. So I've had people tell me that they give it prophylactically, automatically, based on a potassium level, where they think they should see bad EKG changes. I don't think it does anything. I think if you have EKG changes, you should give it. I think if you don't have EKG changes, keep it at the bedside or keep it someplace close, but you know, you don't need to necessarily give it prophylactically because it's not going to help you. The duration is only about an hour. So if you're not going to do anything else about the potassium, it's still going to be there in an hour, and that's going to wear off, and you're going to have EKG changes. All right, so again, indications for calcium chloride over gluconate, style point. Decide which is your style, stick with it, own it. And make sure you have a good vein if you give calcium chloride. Yes? Oh, I can't go back. <laughs> I don't know how to go back. You're going to mess me up if I go back, but that's okay. It is. And if the patient's dead, you're just going to push it because it's not going to matter, <laughs> right? But in the but yes, in the in the patient that's awake and alive and whatever, you can you should give it over 10 minutes. It shouldn't be a fast IV bolus push, but it can be pretty quick. This is for the gluconate. This is for the gluconate or the chloride. Maybe it labs back and the calcium's elevated. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there's a lot of reasons to have elevated calcium. No, it could mean, depend on their underlying condition. As far as elevated potassium. Having high calcium isn't necessarily, having high calcium on your BMP isn't necessarily going to be protective, I don't think, about against, because there's lots of reasons to have high calcium on your BMP, right, that don't necessarily reflect a high level of calcium in your blood. So, okay, so you still give it. Okay. Yeah. As long as they're peeing, nothing's going to happen, and they're not, you know. Yeah, right. There's a research question for you. And by that time, the patient's dead. So just push the <laughs> calcium. <laughs> no, it's a good question. That's a, that's a very interesting. Lots of things like this come up under the electrolyte stock. So it's kind of interesting. There's not a lot of literature out there, um, in all honesty, on electrolyte emergencies, because it was all done in 1950 on patients. Like, no one's randomizing, doing double-blind randomized control studies on hyperkalemic patients. So you know, there's no research out there. It's all clinical experience that's been written up. All right, and patients with renal failure, which are a subset of this. All right, so, yeah. Yeah, the nurse won't push it. The nurse knows better than to push it, but if you get someone new, it should be over 10 minutes. All right, so insulin and glucose, your doses. One of the interns, go ahead, yell it out. Dose of your regular insulin. 
that you give for hyperkalemia? Anybody? Bueller? <coughs> hmm? That would work. How do you want to give the regular insulin? Okay. You don't have much time to drop the potassium. Yeah. So your dose is usually about 10 units IV. It's a quick, easy, dirty thing to remember. 10, unit, 10 units of regular insulin IV. D50 is usually one amp. You can give two amps if they don't have underlying glucose pathology. They might need it. And after an hour of regular insulin in somebody that doesn't have diabetes that you only gave one amp to, they may get hypoglycemic on you. So you're going to need to give them probably another amp of D50. The onset's 15 minutes. Yeah. What? So the onset's in 15 minutes, so it, it does work pretty quickly, and it will coincide with your calcium to drop the potassium in time. And the duration is four to six hours, and the peak effect is in the first hour. So if the first hour of your K, if you still think the K is high, you can actually repeat it. because you want it in there faster. The sub-Q, you don't know what the absorption is. You don't know how long it's going to be absorbed for. So traditional teaching is that it's IV. So albuterol, and I've been chastised lately because I haven't started albuterol because it's such a great potassium-lowering drug. Anybody want to know the dose? Like triple, at least. So you can imagine that you have this hyperkalemic patient who may be in renal failure, maybe can't breathe, maybe volume overloaded, maybe already tachycardic, sweaty, whatever, and you're gonna give them 15 milligrams of albuterol in a continuous neb? On, you're gonna like, yeah, it's like you're, you're gonna like kill this person giving them albuterol, right? But it does work. It works really quickly. You know, the onset's five minutes, roughly. It'll start to drop your K if you don't kill them first. The duration's two hours, so it lasts kind of a long time. Problem is it doesn't drop at more than 0.5 to one, no matter how much you give them. So. If you're giving them a lot, I mean, maybe that's the difference between them coding and not. I don't know if you're going to push them more into coding. If they're already tachycardic, hypertensive, you know, sweating, can't breathe, and you're sitting here giving them albuterol to drop their K, it seems to me that insulin and glucose would be a much better option for you. And we're calling dialysis if they're on that. All right, bicarbonate. You have to kind of throw out your mnemonic in real life. Um, it still might work on tests because I don't think they changed it, but. It's, it's in books now from 1998, so I would say probably drop it out of your algorithm. Um, the research is out there that says basically unless the person's acidotic already and not from renal failure acidosis, it probably doesn't do much to change the potassium. Now, that's not that you shouldn't give it. If they have rhabdo or they have something else that is treated with bicarbonate, give it, but just don't expect the K to change because of the bicarb. So that's something a little bit different. Excretion agents, KXLate, we all give that, right? 15 to 30 grams PO. Onset, anybody? How long does it take to kick in? It's a while. It's more than two hours. So don't expect, you know, if you have somebody with a relatively increased K of six and a half or seven, KXLate alone probably isn't an adequate treatment. Um, so, you know, this is more for your patient where the K is five and a half or something and you're, you're gonna, they're gonna be fine. Duration is four to six hours. And the use of sorbitol is actually pretty controversial. Although not really, it's controversial in the same way that droperidol is controversial, that maybe there was a bad outcome once or twice in a couple of patients and now suddenly it's got this, this black box type of warning to it in that it causes colonic necrosis where they think that's what's responsible for causing colonic necrosis in patients with k -exalate. The people that tend to get that are of course these renal failure patients 
that really shouldn't be getting caxalate because caxalate doesn't work in them or it works unreliably in renal failure patients. The true treatment for that is going to be what we're going to talk about next, which is dialysis. And then the real spot that this works in is the colon. So if they've had a colectomy for whatever reason, caxalate will not work. Do not give it to them. They need dialysis, which is something that, you know, sometimes you just forget when you're, you're so used to writing for the same therapy over and over again. You forget sometimes when it's going to work and when it's not. You can, but it's not going to do anything. It's, so if they're coding, well, I mean, no, dialysis. Yeah, it's not going to help. It's not going to kick in before you pronounce them dead. And there's some talk about actually taking the sorbitol out of the caxalate. Our our caxalate's complex with sorbitol, so most caxalate is because if you give caxalate without sorbitol, <laughs> it's a binding agent, and then you really should get colonic necrosis because it's not going to move anywhere. It's like getting charcoal. Um, but it's not going to move anything. Even with a retention enema, the, the onset isn't necessarily any. It's like an hour. And this is an exchange resin. It's an exchange, exchange resin. resin. So when you may get rid of potassium, you just absorb sodium. Yes. Yeah, it's one to one. They it goes through the colon and yeah, it's like a pump. So the ultimate excretion agent that we always need to remember is dialysis, right? People that are on dialysis should get dialysis. Caxalate isn't going to work in them. All these other treatments are temporizing. The only the other indication for dialysis is the other treatments aren't working. You know, if you're giving insulin and glucose, you still can't get their potassium down. They need to be dialyzed, even if their creatinine seems to be normal from whatever their underlying pathology is. And that's the thing with you know <coughs> hyperkalemia is there's so many other underlying pathologies that, that cause this. Um, you know, rhabdo cell death, tumor lysis that dialysis is really going to be the only thing that's going to solve those things. You can give insulin and glucose until the cows come home, but it's not going to help them. All right. So let's talk about a real-life situation that we see all the time. It's 10 o'clock, 65-year-old male sent in by PMD. because potassium drawn earlier today was 6.5, right? How many people have seen this person? <laughs> How many people are tired of seeing this person? Yeah, right. The patient's asymptomatic, okay? What do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> do with this person, right? <laughs> I'd like to do nothing. <laughs> I'd like to send them home. <laughs> All right. But a reasonable approach, exactly. Repeat the labs, check renal function. You could get an EKG if you felt particularly um, adventurous and wanted to maybe see what the lab results would be before they came back. But because EKG changes in level aren't always correlating, um, you may get stuck. But assume that the EKG shows no changes. So he's got a normal EKG. This is his EKG. Looks beyond normal. Okay. So you have a couple possible scenarios, right? Either the potassium is unchanged or higher, the renal function poor, the patient gets admitted. It's easy. Slam dunk, right? The other situation with this is that the potassium is now normal and the renal function is normal. Easy. Send the patient home. It's this thing in the middle. It's the potassium is now still a little bit elevated and higher than you would like. There's no hemolysis. His renal function is kind of semi, you know, 1.4. It's not perfect, but it's not completely, you know, he needs to be on dialysis. What do you do with this person? This is the 2 a.m. bane of your existence, right? You see this all the time. So what does somebody want to do with them? Any ideas? Beauty. You want to treat them with anything? This is your K-Axolite patient. That's perfect. So consider the patient's risk for, for hyperkalemia. You know, do they have a reason to have it? Are they on an ACE inhibitor? Are they on a potassium-sparing diuretic? Are they on NSAIDs? Are they on a beta blocker? Something that you could take away from them that's giving them this hyperkalemia so that you can be assured that it's not going to come back. 
Um, and generally, it's accepted that if the K is less than 6.5, the patient's asymptomatic, no EKG changes. Some people will say, just send them home then. That's a little bold for me with a K of 5.7 that was previously <laughs> 6.5. So you can just do an exchange resin of Zyrovim, send them home later. You know, in all honesty, no, not necessarily. It depends, you know, if, if this person you wasn't on any of those things and their K was 6.5 and now it's 5.7, not necessarily. No, you, you just talk to them, you make sure they have close follow-up. Give them a low potassium diet, you don't want them going home and eating like a barrel of bananas tomorrow kind of thing, because there is usually something, it's just that we don't get to figure it out. And they usually need more of a renal workup. Okay. Uh, I think we did this. Heparin raises potassium, but we're not going to see that because they're admitted. Right. I don't think Lovenox wasn't, it's, it's specifically unfractionated. Yeah. So test answers, five causes, right? Not real acidosis, renal failure, cell death drugs, things to remember on the test. Five EKG changes, again, tall peak T waves, prolonged PR, widened QRS, loss of P wave, sine wave. But in real life, you're not going to necessarily see those. Doesn't mean that the patient doesn't have critically severe hyperkalemia. All right, five treatments, we know these stabilize, shift, and eliminate. Okay, I'm going to talk about hyponatremia, which is the other thing. And then this is the last thing that I totally have to talk about. I have like a little board book review session on the rest of the electrolytes, just like a quick review that I'll send, I'll just send you guys the talk, you can read through it. So hyponatremia, the other, kind of arguably emergency, but not really. All right, so pseudohyponatremia, let's get this out of the way now. So hyperglycemia, free water is drawn out of the cell because their glucose is really high. And so they get the pseudohyponatremia. Decrease in serum sodium, two milliequivalents for every 100 increase in glucose over 100. So i.e. a patient with a glucose of 500, their sodium should be down by about eight, right? 1.6 is really the real number. Two is easier to remember. And it'll get you close enough. Hyperlipidemia and hyperproteinemia can also cause a low sodium, but it's not anything that happens in your body. It happens when they do the lab test. So it's not to worry about. Okay, so this is usually due to some sort of excess water relative to sodium. Okay, that's the only way you can get it. Nausea, headache, lethargy, seizures. Your brain does not like sodium disruptions. Your heart doesn't like potassium disruptions. Your brain doesn't like sodium disruptions. Symptoms usually start around a sodium of 120, and this is pretty reliable, um, in that if they have a sodium of 128 and they're having symptoms, it's probably not because of their sodium is 128. And usually these patients are really stable and they require no treatment. And we'll talk about the treatment, but it's pretty rare that you actually have to give it. So there's a classification scheme that, that I promise no pathophysiology, and I'm not going into it really like extensively, but you just have to be aware that there's kind of three different volume states associated with hyponatremia that you can have. They're really obvious. You've seen all these patients. It's not hard. We can do this. So hypovolemic hyponatremia. Sounds complicated, right? No. This is your gastroenteritis patient. This is your patient on diuretics, right? Hypovolemic, dehydrated. So this is loss of body water with secondary water retention. This is excessive sweating, gastroenteritis, third space losses, burns, diuretics, some other things. Okay, but they're dehydrated with hyponatremia for whatever reason. Hypervolemic hyponatremia. This is your cirrhotic patient. This is your cirrhotic patient that comes in with the sodium of 118 that you kind of are like, oh my God, their sodium is 118. And then you go back and look and their sodium is 118 for the last six months. This is why. They're hypovolemic hyponatremia. Euvolemic hyponatremia 
are the, the weird things, right? The patient has a lung tumor and is hyponatremic. The patient has a psych disorder and has psychogenic polydipsia, which ironically enough is the only person I've ever had to see anybody get 3% in is a psychogenic polydipsia patient. And then hypothyroidism. So SIEDH, remember, no diuresis, too much water, lung CNS drugs, right? So euvolemic hyponatremia. The treatment for hyponatremia of any form is it kind of depends. It depends on the etiology, the chronicity, and the severity. Okay, those are the things that you have to remember. If it came on slowly, you've got to correct it slowly. If it came on quicker, you still need to correct it slowly, but you can go a little bit faster than slow. So hypovolemic hyponatremia, most of these patients are not sick. Most of these patients will not get their sodium down far enough to where you actually have to treat them emergently with 3% because they're going to start seizing. It just doesn't happen. This is the kind of person that comes in and it's like, oh, do you see their sodium is 125 on their, their BMP? Oh, yeah, well, they've been having vomiting and diarrhea for four days. What do you expect? Well, yeah, right. So correct their hypovolemia, right? They're dehydrated. They're not really peeing. They're hyponatremic. Correct their hypovolemia. That should correct 95% of these people, 98% of these people, because these people just don't get their sodium that far down. Euvolemic hyponatremia is treated usually with water restriction and Lasix if their sodium is under 120. Now, if their sodium is 106 and they're seizing, you're going to get stuck giving them 3%. But most of these people don't require anything except water restriction, and their sodium will come back up. Hypervolemic hyponatremia, this is CHF, renal failure, cirrhosis, salt and water restriction, they do just fine. Okay? And it's usually chronic in those patients. So life-threatening situations. Book answer, is a sodium less than 20 in any CNS abnormalities? In reality, focal neuro, seizures, coma. Sodium's gonna be usually around 100. Okay, if they're having a seizure and their sodium's 120, it's probably not because of their sodium, in all honesty. Because it just doesn't get that bad, unless it, their sodium normally runs 145 and they're fine. But you can usually drop your sodium pretty quick to like 125 and nothing will happen to you, 120. The seizures that happen usually happen with serum sodium close to 100. The goal to raise the serum sodium slowly, no more than 0.5 to 1 milliequivalent per hour, per hour, and no more than 10 to 12 milliequivalents per day. Any remember, anybody remember why? <coughs> CPM. Right. CPM is confusion progressing to cranial nerve deficits and quadriparesis locked in, in, locked in syndrome, and if you are lucky, they die. Okay, because if you aren't and they live, get yourself a very good malpractice attorney because this is a really horrible, horrible, horrible thing to do to anybody. They have locked-in syndrome. These are people that are normally walking, talking, who have a low sodium, who are given 3%, that are corrected too quickly, and they end up with this. So that's why who gets hypertonic saline? It's really people with just seizures and coma. In all honesty, unless they're dying in front of you and they're super sick, they really have no need to get 3%. You're not going to be able to raise them that quickly anyway. And if their sodium's 120 and they're seizing, consider another cause of the seizure, because it probably is not their sodium. We'll talk about how to get 3%. Yep, that's next. So 3%, right? And you need to address their volume status. So if they're hypovolemic, they have no urine output, you need to establish urine output before you give them 3% anyway. So address the volume status first. Because if you give them 3%, they're already dehydrated, you're not going to help anything. So establish urine output first. But if you have urine output, then yeah, and they're seizing, 3% normal saline. And there's a really quick and easy, dirty way to remember to give us. So you're going to have 100 milliliters over 10 minutes, right? Now, a lot of people stop seizing after this. If they don't, you can repeat this over 50 minutes. But then you're going to stop. You're going to stop all sodium-containing fluids because otherwise you're going to raise their serum sodium too quickly. So you can give them 3%, but then it's really important that you do not give them any other sodium-containing fluids 
or any other kind of things that are going to alter their sodium for the next 24 hours because you don't want to increase their sodium too fast. Not even normal saline. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. That's why you need to establish the urine output before. And sometimes just establishing urine output will have the person stop seizing because you'll raise their serum sodium enough. Because anything you give them, if their sodium is 106 and you're giving them normal saline at 105, 145, their sodium is going to come up a little bit. And all you really need to do in these patients is get it up by usually about 1 to 2 milliequivalents. That's fine. The Ativan probably won't do anything. But yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And you should wait for a sodium. I mean, it's not really good to to start throwing 3% saline at people that are seizing. <coughs> All right, conovaptin is something that you may hear about, you may not hear about. It's a vasopressin receptor antagonist. They don't know if this has the same, if, you, if it raises it too fast, if you get CPM. They don't know anything. It's expensive. This is a rare condition that we don't usually have to give medication for, and this is a really expensive medication, so you probably won't see it here given ever. Okay, hypernatremia, I'm gonna hold. You can read through hypernatremia because it's not interesting. It's basically debilitated patients that can't drink. <laughs> it's essentially hypernatremia. We are now into the I'm reaching for electrolyte emergencies. So hold on, let me go through. Hypokalemia is the same way. And I will send this to you guys because there's all kinds of stuff in here, but it's mostly book review. Whoops. It depends how low it is, and it depends how symptomatic, and it depends why. You know, if it's less than two and a half, yeah, you're going to recheck it. If it's 2.8, no. Okay. If it's a low potassium, uh -huh. depends how low it is. Honestly, you don't worry about potassiums until they're like two and a half. If it's two and a half, the one <coughs> caveat with hypokalemia, which I feel like I need to mention, is um is the hypokalemic like periodic paralysis is this person young healthy who had a carbohydrate load whose k is now 1.9 but they're kind of on the bed and they can't walk that's a fluid that's a potassium shift that's not a true total deficit of potassium so if you like see that patient with 1.9 you're like holy shit give them 80 give them another 80 in 20 minutes give them another 80 in 20 more minutes because they're you know their potassium is 1.9 they're gonna stick them on a monitor give them 20 a k because when that shift it's a shift. It's a shift out of the intravascular space into the cells. When that shift kicks back in, all that potassium that's in their cells is going to come back, and they're going to end up hyperkalemic, and then they're going to die from their hyperkalemia. So do not replace their potassium, or even attempt to replace their potassium to normal. You can give them a little bit. Yeah, stand there. Right. That's the perfect. If you feel like you need to, give them 20. You know, but you don't have to replace the potassium. It's a fluid shift. It's a potassium shift and you'll kill them if you give them potassium. So just hang out. Put them on a monitor, hang out. And then the other thing is if you think it's because of hyperthyroidism, potassium won't even help you. Just give them propranolol and that'll fix it. So you know that's the one caveat to hypokalemia where the value's super low. You're super scared because this person's like paralyzed and they're young and you're like, oh my god. And it's a fluid shift. It'll resolve on its own. Just keep an eye on them. Huh? Four to six hours. A day at the worst, and they're fine. All right. The hypokalemic periodic paralysis. There's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple different versions of it. There's the the thyroid hyperthyroidism in Asian males after a carbohydrate load is the classic. It's the we went drinking and went out for I don't know in and out after and 
Yeah. 1.6 is the actual number. Two. So for every 100 over 100, the glucose, it drops your sodium by two. Over 100. So for every, so you give a, you're, you get a value of 100. And then for every 100 over that, your sodium drops by two milliequivalents.